All right, so here we are. We come back to our study through the Gospel of Mark here. And we're, we're going today to look literally at four words. We just want to look at one sentence out of this lengthy uh, portion of Scripture that we read. Um, but before we do that, um, I want to talk about a few things, give a little bit of an introduction, and then uh, talk about a few of the other points. But the four words that we're going to look at are found in the 22nd verse, and they are, have faith in God. So that's where we're headed. But as we just look at the, the narrative in general, let me just sort of remind you that this is now the last week of the public ministry of Jesus. So at the end of this week, uh, Jesus will be betrayed. He will uh, be sentenced to death. He will be crucified. And, and then ultimately, of course, he will rise again. So what we're looking at in these next few chapters are the things that happened in Jerusalem during that final week of his public ministry. And, and there we find, and, and we'll see that there's much debate uh, with the religious leaders of the day. We will also see that there's some instruction that he gives to his disciples. And, and then we will, we will see finally at the end of this, this week prior to his uh, crucifixion that Jesus is going to teach about uh, what we would commonly refer to as the end of the world. He's going to teach about uh, the fact that um, Jerusalem is going to uh, be judged, uh, the nations are going to be judged, and, and he's going to finally uh, and ultimately rule and reign over the earth. So that, that's all going to come in the course of this week that we're studying here over the next three chapters. Uh, but today, before we look at the four words I mentioned, have faith in God, I want to look at a few of the details uh, in the the verses that we just read. And um, one of the reasons why I want to look at these things is because uh, there, there has been confusion in people's minds about some of the things that Jesus said here. So first of all, let's look at the cursing of the fig tree. Now, now, believe it or not, some people are upset at Jesus because he cursed this fig tree. I've, uh, you know, read things where people are, you know, talking about how cruel Jesus was, you know, how dare he curse the fig tree and so forth. So um, I don't know. I mean, that's, I'm not even going to, try to explain that to the people who are upset about it. But what we need to understand here is that this is a symbolic act. So Jesus isn't, you know, upset and just, I'm going to curse this fig tree because I'm, I'm ticked. You know, I came here to get some figs and there's no figs. So <laughs> I'm just going to zap this thing. Jesus is not doing that. He's actually using this as a symbol, and it's symbolic of the judgment that is going to come upon the nation, and more precisely, the judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem and the temple. And, and there's another passage in Luke that gives us a little more insight. In Luke chapter 13, um, Jesus spoke a parable there. Luke recorded it, and this is what it said. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, 
And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the soil? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. And so, and so this is, this is the time when the, the judgment now is being pronounced upon the nation because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And, and so symbolically by cursing the fig tree, he's sending a message that this is now, um, about to take place. Secondly, I want us just to, to know this about the cleansing of the temple. So, when Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple, as he does here, this act is in and of itself, in a sense, it's a proof of his identity. Because no mere human being could have done this. No other person could have just walked into the temple and did what Jesus did. Why? Because the temple was the, the most sacred place in the nation, and it was guarded by a virtual army. So the high priest... Uh, he had under his authority, he had really what was in effect an army. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, it's not the Romans who arrest Jesus in the garden. It's the Jewish soldiers that are under the authority of the high priest. So point being that um, had Jesus not been who he actually was, the son of God, and excuse me, entering into what was in effect his temple because he referred to it as his own and he also referred to it in the other gospels as his father's house. Uh, had he not been the son of God, he couldn't have just simply you know, walked in and did what he did. So the cleansing of the temple was really, in a sense, it was a further evidence of his messiahship. And, and remember, as we read, uh, the authorities, the authorities themselves were uh, asking him, who gave you the authority? Why do you think you can do such a thing? They couldn't stop him from doing it, but now they were trying to ascertain, you know, what authority he had to be able to do it. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, um, we need to understand that Jesus, like all of us do today, he at times would speak with hyperbole. Now, you know what it means to um, speak with hyperbole. It means uh, you're, you're, you're exaggerating something. It's an extravagant exaggeration. And it's, it's, you know, it's communicating something, but it, it's, it's saying it in a, in a much more uh, dramatic type of a way. So if, if I wanted to use hyperbole about being hungry, um, I would say, man, I am starving to death. Well, the truth is, I'm not starving to death. I, I'm not going to die anytime soon from starvation. But what I'm doing is I'm expressing um, in an exaggerated way that, man, I am really hungry. So we do that, right? We, we do that all the time in, in our speech. And Jesus did that as well. And the reason it's important for us to know that, because if we don't know that, then we might look at some things Jesus said and we think, wow, you know, I don't know, Jesus maybe got this wrong. For example, in our passage that we read, Jesus uses hyperbole here. 
He says, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it will obey you. That's hyperbole. Jesus never intended for the disciples to go around casting mountains into the sea. What was his point? His point was that God, what seems impossible to you is not impossible to God. He wants them to know that. That even what what seems impossible, if you have trust in God, God is able to do what you can't imagine being done. Another place Jesus used hyperbole, just to note, is when he talked about um, the, uh, well, actually his point was to, to communicate the severity of judgment that would come upon those who didn't turn from their sin. And he said this, he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. For it would be better to live life maimed than to have your whole body to be cast into the hellfire. Now, again, did Jesus expect anyone to pluck out their eye? Absolutely not. It's hyperbole. He didn't want anybody to cut off their hand or their feet. He's just trying, like we would do at times, he's using extreme language to communicate something. And so let's not misunderstand Jesus um, when he uses hyperbole. Let's recognize that's exactly what it is. So don't feel bad if you haven't been able to move that mountain into the sea. Uh, Nobody has done that. It was never um, the intention of the Lord for that to be done. So those are the things I just wanted to kind of touch on those, but I really, like I said, I want to zero in on just this one simple sentence, have faith in God, because that's really uh, everything around here. That's what uh, it's, it's all pointing back to. Jesus is calling us to have faith in God. So what is faith? Now, for some people, some people think that faith is, is that you just in a sense, like, you know, faith would be something that the gullible would express because, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that there's no evidence or it doesn't matter that it's absolutely, you know, impossible, ridiculous that such a thing could happen. Uh, but, but faith just says, well, I believe it regardless of that. So what is faith? Is it refusing to think and reason and just accepting something as true, even though the facts say something different? No, that is not faith according to the Bible. But like I said, some people think that is what faith is. No, that's not faith. That might be called blind faith, but it's not the kind of faith the Bible is speaking of. The the biblical um, description of faith is really trusting based on evidence and specifically based on uh, evidence for God uh, that he has communicated to us through his word. So you see, whenever God calls us to believe him, he, he always gives us a basis for believing. So if you've thought that, you know, some people try to... Um, they try to uh, separate or, or make a distinction between or put at opposite 
ends of the spectrum, faith and reason. Well, you know, you people have faith, I have reason. No, faith is based on reason. Now, maybe you're not going to have all of the information, but you have enough information to make uh, an intelligent decision. And that, that's faith in scripture. So Jesus says, have faith in God. But then the second point is that he says, have faith in God. Now, this is the crux of the faith problem for some people. They can't believe in God. That, that's the whole problem. I can't have, I can't have faith. I can't, I can't believe in God. Uh, there, there's no evidence for God, they say. Anybody ever said that to you? I've had people say that to me. People say, well, I, I've never seen any evidence for God. Uh, you know, I have occasionally, and I like to say, well, you know, um, have, why don't you look in the mirror? Why don't you look in the mirror? Right right there, as you look at that reflection in the mirror, there, there's evidence for God right there. Now, but, you know, when we look in the mirror, we don't necessarily think about what's actually happening, right? We don't think about these eyes that we're seeing our reflection with, that these eyes are like cameras that are taking pictures, and those pictures are then being uh, reflected on our part of our brain, and then that's all being interpreted to us what we're, what we're looking at. No, when I just look in the mirror, I'm just thinking, man, I am getting old, or uh, I, I should shave today, or, um, you know, if my wife's looking in the mirror, she's thinking, I, I need some makeup. Um, you know, we don't look in the mirror and think, there's a miracle happening right now, but there is. There is a miracle taking place. So, so this whole idea that um, there's no evidence to believe in God, it, it really just isn't true. As a matter of fact, the Bible itself tells us that there is evidence. And as I'm saying, we are part of that evidence. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Roman church in chapter 1, verse 20, he said this. He said, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So here Paul says that, that God's invisible qualities, they, they're clearly seen in the things that are made. In other words, the evidence for God is all around us if we would just open our eyes to really see what's going on. And, and, you know, I mean, if you just, you know, I'm looking over there right now, I'm seeing the, the grass outside, I'm seeing some, some of the little bushes that are growing up along the window, I'm seeing some of the trees. And, and you know, we look at that and we think, oh, there, there's no evidence for God there. But then when you, you start to look at things like photosynthesis and you start to realize what's actually happening with the, the oxygen and the different, different things that are happening that, that have created this unbelievable environment, this perfect environment for us to live in. It's like, wow, I, I, you know, that, that's a little more uh, complicated than I thought it was. So the evidence is all around us. Now, um, let's talk for a moment about computer programs and websites. How many of you have a computer at home? How many of you have a computer? Okay. How many of you do not have a computer? Anybody doesn't have a computer? Okay. It's okay to not have a computer. It's fine. Uh, some people last service didn't have computers, so you guys should get together and start a fellowship for the uh, unplugged, call it unplugged, um, 
How many of you have been to a website before? Been to a website? How many of you have been to the church's website? You've been to the church's website? Okay, good. The rest of you, go to the church's website, cccm.com. Um, so what you have in a computer or at, at a website or at an app or any of these other things, uh, you have, uh, behind that, you have a code. And, and so, there, you know, there's nothing that, that's going to happen through a computer program or there's nothing that's going to happen on a website that isn't connected back to the fact that there is a code. So my youngest son, Braden, he is a coder. He's a web developer. And so sometimes he'll come over and he'll say, hey, dad, check this out. You know, I'm building this site or whatever. And, you know, he'll walk me through what he's doing and, and what, what it does. And then, you know, he might, there might be some sort of animated something. And I'll say, well, how did you get it to do that? He says, oh, well, I coded it this. And I'm just like, wow, you know, this to me is like, I don't get it at all. You know, so, so there are these, these, these languages and their code. And so everything that's, that's happening, if you go to the website, you go to the, generally, you know, your web, a website opens at the home page, and then at the home page, you have various other, uh, features that you can access through the home page. And, and, you know, all of the things, my point is simply this, all of the things that, that a, a website does, they do it because of code code behind the scenes is everything you see on the screen, um, it's, it's all related to, to these codes, these numbers, these letters, these sequences that you can't see, but they're back, uh, they, they are in, in the background producing what you do see. Now, so the program though, is the work of a programmer. The code is the work of a coder. There, there's not really anybody, I would imagine, that thinks that a computer programs itself or that, you know, code just originates spontaneously just sort of out of nowhere. Nobody would think that. That would be absurd. That would be ridiculous. That would be uh, laughable. You know, if, if you said, well, I, I don't believe, I don't believe that, that there's a coder. I, I just think that this software, I just think it just came together. I don't know. It just happened. I don't know how it happened. It just happened. You know, people would say, well, okay, you're nuts, but fine. You know, it didn't happen that way. Now, listen, listen to a man who says, we're talking about evidence for God, right? Listen to a man who says he sees no evidence of a God who created. This man happens to be Richard Dawkins. We'll use him as an illustration here. He, he says, of course, he, he sees zero evidence for God. But listen to what he says about the DNA. The DNA code is so digital, it is almost exactly like a computer code. Almost exactly like a computer code. DNA is, uh, it's a biological form of a computer code, uh, code or, 
the computer code, of course, of course came later. But, but that's, that's what Dawkins says. Now, Bill Gates, who's not like an outspoken atheist necessarily, but he, he just simply said this. He said, DNA is more advanced than any software ever created. Okay, so I'm saying that Jesus says, Has faith, have faith in God. Some people say, oh, I, I can't do that. I just, I don't see any, any evidence for God. Like I said, we'll look in the mirror. But let's look in the microscope. Let's, let's look at DNA. Now, DNA is the information source that makes every living thing what it is. So DNA is made up um, of, of nucleotides, four molecules. That's also called a molecule. Uh, DNA is a molecule in every living thing telling it what it should look like and how it should function. So DNA is a code. How do you have a code but not a coder? It makes zero sense. And as complicated as computer codes are, DNA is uh, just infinitely more complicated than that. So, so the idea that you could have something so complex that came about not because of an intelligent mind behind it, but just, just randomly came into existence, that, that is the idea. That's what Dawkins and others believe. It, it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, molecular biologist Douglas Axe, um, he, he put it this way. He said, the chance that DNA could have developed through random chance mutations, as Dawkins and others suggest, is 1 in 10 to the 74th power. Now, that's a, a number that, you know, is incomprehensible. Um, but he, he wanted to give us, you know, some sort of a way to to comprehend it to some extent. So he said, this is what, this is what it would be like. For, for DNA to develop through just random mutations, it would be the same as uh, a, a, some, an atom, an atom, A-T-O-M, uh, marked. Somehow you got to mark this atom. And this atom is... It's somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy. And now what you do is you get an astronaut and you blindfold him. And the chance that the astronaut's going to just, you know, reach out and grab that atom is the same chance that DNA is going to develop through random mutations. So what does it tell you? Mathematically, it is utterly impossible. So it's impossible for there to be a sophisticated code like DNA is without there being an intelligent mind behind it. Without there being a coder. It, it, it can't happen. So the next time somebody says to you, I don't see any evidence for a God, just ask them if they know anything about DNA. 
Ask them if they know that it's a code. And then just simply ask them, who coded it? See, there, there has to be. So, so this idea that having faith in God is something that, you know, only um, unintelligent people do that. Um, there's, there's really just nothing more absurd. So DNA is a code. There must be a coder. I can't think of anyone better than the God of the Bible to fit the bill. So having faith in God seems to me to be the most reasonable thing any human being could do. Now, let's take this same sentence and let's practically apply it. So there is a God, contrary to popular opinion. There is a God. Jesus says, have faith in God. Now, Jesus, of course, is speaking to people who believe in God. And, and I'm speaking probably mostly to people who believe in God as well. Um, so let, let's think about that sentence, have faith in God. When we have faith in God, this is, this is what we're putting our faith in. And, and if, if I didn't say it, let me just say it now. Um, a synonym for faith is trust. So just think, think about when you're talking about having faith in God, you're just really saying trust in God. Now, the question is, is God trustworthy? And it sure seems like he is. We have a, a, a book. We have a historical record of God's faithfulness throughout the centuries. It's called the Bible. We have one here with us today. We have many. So, so we trust God is, God is trustworthy. We see that he's trustworthy. So now when we think of, of us believing in God, I want to put it like this. Have faith in the God who, first of all, made you. When you're struggling with trusting God, just remember this. God made you. God made you. And we already talked about uh, what a miracle that is. We, just in looking at the DNA itself. But, but God made you. He made you specifically. And David put it like this. Uh, with, without the, the understanding of everything that was going on on the cellular level, David could still look at nature around him. He could look up into the sky and he could look at his own reflection and he could say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And listen, when we really begin to get hold of, um, you know, the truth of the complexity of our, of our being, it, it's a thing that really strikes the best kind of fear in a person's heart. It, it's the kind of thing that really um, reduces a person to their knees. Because you, you just realize. And you know, some of these um, great scientific minds, um, again, contrary to popular belief, not all scientists are atheists. There are many scientists that are believers. And all of the uh, early founders of what we know today as modern science, almost every one of them to a person was a believer. Yes, most of them were actually Christians in the true biblical sense. Uh, many of them just were theistic. They just believed that there was a God. 
But, but when a person who, you know, maybe comes to understand the complexity of the DNA or just some of the different things that our, our bodies do or, or maybe the, um, you know, the vastness of the universe and, and the fine tuning of the universe, how everything is just perfectly fit right in order for life as we know it to happen. When, you know, there, there are people who, when they discover this, scientists, this, these discoveries have in some cases, or, or maybe not a discovery, but maybe in, in some cases, just a, a realization. This has brought people to their knees. It's the, it's the recognition, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So remember, we are to put our faith in the one who made us. Now, here's my point. If you are, and I am, and we are, as complex as the data reveals, then that also shows us that the God who made us is infinitely brilliant. And if you are the child of the infinitely brilliant God, guess what? You can trust him. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Now, one of the atheist arguments, you know, the funny thing about atheists is it's like in in one sense, they almost know that they can't dismiss God. It's really more that they just don't like the God that is presented. I mean, that, that's really it. Uh, they don't want there to be a God like the Bible reveals. They don't want there to be a God who judges. They don't want there to be a God who allows things they can't understand. And so they really just don't like what God does. But if we understand the utter brilliance of God, and our minds can't even like remotely begin to comprehend his utter brilliance, then we also ought to just face the fact that he knows things that we don't know. And what looks like a mess to us or what looks like a disaster or what looks like a misfortune or what looks like this never should have happened if there was a God, you know, if we understand who God is, we just say, okay, you know, I don't understand that, but my brain is so small, I couldn't comprehend it. But, but the God I serve, he, he, he knows what he's doing. And that's the message for me and for you. God knows what he's doing in our lives. And we can trust him, that he actually knows what he's doing. The one who created uh, the DNA, he knows what he's doing. The one who, who put all of that information there. Do you know that they say that the, all the world's data, all the information in the world could be contained in a spoonful of DNA? Wow, that's a lot of information. That, that's amazing. Uh, again, with, with DNA, if you were to type out the code, if you were to start typing, uh, it's 60 words a minute, eight hours a day, it would take you 50 years to type out the code for DNA. So that's, that's more information than, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some volumes in my library of, you know, books of 500 pages, 700 pages, 900 pages. And I look at that, I think, who, who in the world could write a 900-page book? Well, think about 
60 words a minute, eight hours a day, 50 years, and, and then you've, you've just then spelled out the information in the DNA. So the God that we're talking about trusting, he created that. We can trust him. But the second thing is that the God that Jesus calls us to have faith in is a God who loves us. He's a God who loves us. And he loves us supremely. How do we know that? Because he said, when he came into the world as a human being, he said on one occasion, he said, the greatest love is to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus said that. He said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. And then he says, and, and you are my friends. And, and that's what he would go on to do. You know, we wonder sometimes, does God really love me? And, you know, the great thing is God didn't leave that up to our uh, subjective uh, kind of feelings uh, to determine whether that's true or not. You know, sometimes I might get up in the morning and, you know, do, do I feel God loves me today? Maybe not. But that doesn't change the fact. How do I know that God loves me? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that you can say to your neighbor or to your colleague at work? Or how do you know you can say, man, God loves you? Because the Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us. God actually demonstrated his love. And where did he demonstrate it? In that Christ died for the ungodly. You can say to every person in the world, God loves you. And I can point you to the evidence of God's love for you. Christ died on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's the demonstration of God's love for us. And um, in the book of Revelation, in the first chapter, the, the, there's a reference to Jesus, and it refers to him as the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Wow. So you see, Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in the God who made you. Have faith in the God who loves you. And thirdly, and finally, have faith in the God who has a plan and a purpose for your life. God has a plan. And we already know the brilliance of God. I mean, at least we got a little glimpse of it. God has plans. The universe itself is, it's, it's very structured. It's very well planned. Some have said that it seems that the universe was made by a, by a great uh, mathematical mind. So, you know, mathematical people, engineers, people like that, what do they do? They, they plan things out. And God created you and he created me with a plan and a purpose for our lives. Now, you know, again, the, you know, to me, I, I don't know, like atheism, I think it's just a, it's kind of like a popular fad. You know, people just want to jump on the, the, the atheism train without really thinking about it. I mean, because, you know, it's essentially a worldview that says your life means absolutely nothing. You have zero purpose. You are simply, um, just a result of accidental things that occurred. 
and you're here, you're a blip on the radar screen, you're here temporarily, and then you're gone. Uh, if you want meaning, you got to figure it out on your own, but that's the best we can give you. Now, you know, I just simply reject that as a view. I just say, sorry, I disagree. I, I disagree. And I think if people stopped and thought about you know, apart from somehow it's cool to be an atheist, but, you know, to get, get around the cool part of it, to just think about the practical realities of it. Wow, meaningless, purposeless? And I, I don't feel like my life is meaningless. I mean, I might go through hard times or have, you know, difficulties that, that tempt me toward despair, and maybe I get to a place where I'm kind of feeling like that. But, you know, the, the reality is, even when our lives are like that, we think, well, wait, they should be different. And because they're not different, I'm depressed. But why should they be different? Well, we just intuitively know that they should be different because my life means something. You see, the Bible says your life means something. And human dignity and significance and meaning and all of those things, you know, they're wrapped up in the fact that you're not an accident. That you're not the result of of random chance mutations, but you're the byproduct of a brilliant mind with a loving heart who created you for a purpose. And the scripture reminds us of that in that great passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Um, there God expresses the plans that he has. Now he's speaking to the nation of Israel in the context, but the application is certainly uh, personal as well because it's true. Here's what he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has a plan for your life. Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God's plan for your life. Have faith that, that he has a purpose and believe in that purpose and engage in that purpose. And that's where you find meaning. That's where you find significance in life. And so trust in God and know, this is the whole point of the statement, Trust in God and know that the things that seem impossible to you are possible with him. Jesus wants us to trust God. He wants you to today in 2019, he wants you to be just like Abraham or like Moses or be like Abraham's wife, Sarah. Or be like, you know, anybody else we, we find in Scripture. Be like Mary when the angel came and told her what was going to happen. Uh, they, what did they do? They said, I, I believe it. I believe it. And God wants you to do the same thing. And he wants me to do the same thing. He wants us to have faith in him. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to remember that he made us. And that he loves us. And that he has a plan. And so we exercise faith by either standing firm 
because the, the, the winds of our circumstances are sometimes trying to blow us out of that place of trusting God. So in some cases, we, we need to trust God and stand firm. In some cases, we need to trust God and step out. See, in some cases, God might be saying, I want you to trust me for this. And, and I want you to take this step. And so by having faith in God, you're saying, okay, God, I believe you. You've been faithful. Your track record is great. I, I see all throughout history, these men and women that you've been faithful in their lives. So God, I'm going to believe that for my life today. And listen, the difference between belief and unbelief is the difference between joy and peace and blessing and um, misery and distress and, and confusion. And, and it's possible for Christians, true Christians, people who believe or have believed in God in, in the more you know, sense of, yes, God's the Savior, Jesus the Son of God. It's possible to believe that, but not to believe the, the, the more specific part about God's plan for your life. Believe it all. Believe the plan of God for your life. Trust him. Trust God. That's what Jesus says. Because if you trust God, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Meaning, if you trust God, what seems impossible is not impossible. God can do it. And God will work in your life. And so we believe that he loves us. We believe that he has a plan. But also remember that the God who wrote your DNA and arranged this universe so perfectly for us to dwell in, remember that that's who God is when things don't seem to make sense. Because, of course, things won't make sense sometimes. We're, we're talking about the infinite God and we are finite beings. So the finite can never comprehend the, the infinite. So there are times when God's doing something and it doesn't make sense. And you're tempted. You think, well, wait, God, I thought you loved me. Um, but, but this doesn't look like it. Okay, that doesn't make sense to me. But I can't see everything God sees. So I fall back. No, God does love me. He proved his love. He showed me that he loved me. So you see, that, that's how we go through Life, A God who created a universe with such precision knows precisely what is best for me and you. And so have faith in God. Trust him. Believe in him. Don't relegate this to, well, that's what they used to do back in the time of the Bible. Now we just worry and get stressed out and try to find other things to solve our problems. No, let's not do that. Because the same God who was working in those people, in those previous generations, is our God. And he wants us to have faith. He wants us to trust him. And he's proven that he is trustworthy. And so, Lord, help us. Help us today to trust you. And... Lord, as you said, Jesus, 
have faith in God. And Lord, we see that you're so grand, you're so glorious, you're so majestic, you're so beyond our ability to really even grasp who you are in your greatness. Lord, that if we could just get that drilled into our heads, it would go so far to helping us trust you. So Lord, give us better understanding of who you are as our creator, as our redeemer, and as our guide through life. And Lord, I pray for anyone today who specifically needs this word to really put their confidence in you at this time. In some lives, it's to stand firm, to trust you and stand firm. For others, it's to step out and move forward. So, Lord, guide and direct and bless in each case. And, Lord, if there's a single person with us today that you know maybe came in today not sure about faith and not even knowing, I mean, is there really a God or any of those things, Lord, that you would have spoken to them and that you would reveal yourself to them and that you are the great God, the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it our creator, our maker, our redeemer, and our savior. Reveal that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.